Okay, so let's get our heads back into Matthew. Um, as Claire was saying, if you've been here with us for a while now, you'll remember we've been going through various sections in Matthew's gospel at this time of the year. Uh, and what we said each time is that Matthew has this, this structure to it where we, we have these sort of five big discourses, sort of like mountaintop speeches that are, that are separated by groups of narrative, things like conversations or, or teaching and miracles and, and, and action. And so if you look back through Matthew's gospel, we, we get the, the birth narrative and, and how Jesus begins his ministry. And then we get the, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the first big discourse. Then last year, we, we moved to, from there to seeing all these miracles that have been grouped together to tell us different things about Jesus. And then another discourse where Jesus sends the 12 disciples out and teaches them what they are to do to announce the kingdom. And now we come to another transition where we've kind of come down off the mountain, away from the, the classroom or the conceptual thinking, and into the reality of what people are actually thinking about the coming of the kingdom. Over the next couple of months, we're going to cover some material to show different people's responses to the coming of the kingdom, the, the coming of the Messiah. We're going to see people ask questions of Jesus like, are you the one? And grapple with questions about what he is like, if he's for them or against them. We're going to see how different people accept or reject the message of the kingdom and how people wrestle with it in the midst of all their beliefs in different circumstances. We'll see ways in which people today still struggle with just what this message of the gospel, of the coming of the kingdom, means for them. And hopefully what we'll see is how God calls us to come and to follow him. To follow him with all our baggage and brokenness, with all our assumptions and worries, with all our tricky situations and doubts. We're going to ask these questions together. To, to ask him, are you the one? To ask what the, what the coming of the kingdom means for wherever we are. Now, really quickly before we get into the detail, Matthew is assuming that we've, that we've read this letter, so we, we should by now have this growing sense of excitement that the, that the kingdom is being revealed and people are starting to see Jesus as the Messiah. So if you think of the, the story so far, we've, we've already seen that he is God, that he's performed all these miracles, and now we're at the point where it seems like the news is getting out. So we, we've sort of been teed up to expect this groundswell of support and, and see people flocking to Jesus and, and falling down at his feet. And so it's maybe a little bit surprising to, to start this journey where we see people's reactions to the, the coming of the kingdom with John the Baptist seeming to doubt if Jesus is the Christ. Now, what we're going to do this morning is to look at the different people in this passage and see how they react to the coming of the kingdom. So we'll look at how John firstly interprets the signs of the kingdom, and then how the people interpret the signs. And we'll think as well what, what, what Jesus points us to in his, in his interpretation of the signs. So, look, the signs are there, something is happening, but how John and the people, and us as the reader, interpret them matters to how they receive it. So let's look firstly at how John responds. Verse 2. When John, who was in prison, that's important, remember that, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So again, remember that and, and think, 
what is the author trying to get us to think when he uses that title? He sent his disciples to him. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, the last time we heard anything about John, it was in chapter 3 when he was preaching this this fiery message of repentance. He's he's calling out the religious leaders, announcing the coming of the king, and, and baptizing people as a sign of the individual's repentance. And we can see in that chapter how confident he is in that preaching. He's proclaiming that that, that someone is coming who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. I mean, that's that's a big claim. He's he's rebuking the religious leaders, and and in that day, that's going to take a lot of courage. So if you think he's he's acting like a prophet, but he's also shown in the description to, to be one. He's dressed and described just like Elijah is in the Old Testament. And we're even told in chapter 3 that, that he is the prophet that Isaiah prophesied about. Plus, when Jesus does come on the scene, he, he, he recognizes him. He understands that, that this man is the spotless lamb of God. That's why he says, I need to be baptized by you. And then he even gets a front row seat as the Father speaks from heaven and the Spirit descends like a dove onto Jesus' baptism. And so from our reading so far, we're supposed to see John as being confident that that God was sending someone, and then as well that 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 person was Jesus. So of all the people, he should be the one nodding knowingly as Jesus goes about his ministry. But instead of that, we get this question, are you the one? Now now we could read this as as doubt, uh, like he's in his jail cell and and feeling very sorry for himself, and starting to question all that he had been doing. But that doesn't really fit with the context. I mean, he's he's not pleading with his captors. He's he's not recanting of his ministry. In fact, he sends out his disciples to ask this question because he'd heard of all the miracles that Jesus was doing. So it's probably not him doubting Jesus or questioning his faith. It makes more sense to read this as if John is in a state of confusion. So don't forget that John has been preaching a message of of repentance. It's a hard one. It's one that said the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, so John, the person who said that, is thinking that, that Jesus' ministry is going to look like the king coming in judgment and sweeping all before him, overthrowing the Romans, putting the religious leaders back in their place. But that's not the kind of thing that Jesus is doing right now. Jesus isn't leading a, a political revolution or clearing out the corruption that John saw all around him. Instead, he's just traveling around and teaching ordinary men and women. And so John must have been asking himself, I mean, wouldn't God be doing something different? He sees Jesus is certainly powerful, the miracles speak to that, but, but is this the one that John had been waiting for? It's not the signs of the kingdom that, that he was expecting. And so he asks that question, are you the one? It seems ridiculous to the, to the reader knowing all that we do, but in reality, it's, 
It's so easy for us to give into the same confusion that John shows here, to create our own assumptions about how God is going to be working in our lives, about how we are supposed to experience him or what that should be like. Just like John in the text, we can be expecting God to to work in one way so strongly that, that when he doesn't, it can feel like he's not working at all. Maybe we're going through an illness and we want, and we are so confident that, that God is going to heal us that we just keep looking for those signs of improvement. But they don't come. And so we ask ourselves, where is he? I've, I've always believed that God is with me, but I don't see him here in this situation. Or maybe we're suffering in our marriages and we have this image of what of what a Christian marriage is supposed to be like, what a, what a Christian husband or wife is, is supposed to be like. And we look across the table and we wonder where God is. We don't see the transformation of the other person that we want. And so we begin to question if the kingdom has really come to our marriages at all. Or we're battling with sin and, and keep falling back into the patterns that we want out of. Or we look around at other people during the, the singing and think, why don't I feel like that? We all have these impressions of what we think God should be doing. Of ways that we assume he will be acting in different situations. And now, they aren't like conscious impressions, not, not things that we would admit to. But deep down, we all have these preconceptions that we've constructed over the years and when God doesn't conform to that image that we hold so tightly in our hearts when he doesn't work in the way that we've assumed that he will then we just feel like he's not acting at all we might say that the kingdom has come but in our hearts we can easily be looking someplace else and wondering if Jesus is really the one that we're waiting for And we do this because our hearts are so deceptive, so corrupted by sin that that even John, the the greatest of those born by women, as Jesus says in verse 11, even he can interpret the signs wrongly because he's looking for something else. But look at Jesus' response, verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So so first you know that Jesus doesn't actually directly answer the question here, does he? Instead, he tells the disciples to look and to listen to what he is doing. So do you see the redirection? John is looking for signs of, of judgment, of revolution, and upheaval. But Jesus tells him instead to look for signs of healing and of mercy and of grace. The blind receiving sight, the lame walking, all the things that that Jesus mentions here have their root in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They are all marks of his ministry. And and what Jesus does through this language is, is to point John back to what God has said he will do. He reminds him of the signs of the kingdom that God has promised rather than those ones that John was looking for. Jesus gently teaches John here 
to look for the signs of the kingdom where God has said he is going to work. For us today, for so many people, comparison steals joy. Our culture thrives on comparison in a way that that teaches our hearts to to envy. And and so we start to believe deep down that the the, the good thing, the, the life that God is going to lead us into is that image that we've produced in our hearts, the image that has been put there by envy. And yet what Jesus tells us is that the kingdom coming affects us in ways that we might not be expecting because God isn't guided by that envy. God God holding us up might not look like a, a supernatural experience of peace. It could just be that somehow we get through that day and then the next and then the next. A deepening of maturity might not look like our devotional times become just, just a breeze. It might be God giving us the discipline to keep going, keep doing them, even when we don't feel like we're getting much back. A strengthening of faith might not look like a, a greater confidence in Christ, but a greater need and dependence and humility as we reach out to others and admit that we need help. Family, God works according to to his ways and not ours. And when we untether our expectations from how he has revealed himself, we simply end up confused. So let me ask you, how have you been interpreting the signs of the kingdom in your life? Have you been growing frustrated because God isn't acting how you expected him to? Confused as to why your life and and spirituality just feel like they do? Maybe it's time to, to meditate and reflect on how God says that he works, what he has told you to look out for. The kingdom coming might look, might mean something different from what we expected. And so we have to be open to interpreting our spiritual lives through God's lenses rather than our own. We're going to think about what that looks like in a minute, but first let's briefly think about our next group that interprets the signs. That's the people around them. So in verses 7 to 9, Jesus turns the, to the people and starts talking about John. Specifically, how, how John himself is, is a messenger of the kingdom a sign of the coming of the kingdom in himself. And what Jesus does is to ask them what they went to see. What what called to them about John? He's asking them about why they reacted to the kingdom coming. And the suggestions that he gives you, if, if if you look there, well, they're supposed to be comical. A flexible read and an affluent man this, this isn't John at all. He wasn't one to be swayed by anything. He, he didn't adapt for people's sensibilities. He just bulldozed on through. He had a message and he delivered it regardless of the offense given or the trouble it was going to bring him into. And he, he didn't wear fine clothes. As, as we said, he's been portrayed as a, as a wild man, a rough man. And yet the people flocked to him and listened to him and followed his warnings. And Jesus is asking them, why? Why did you go to him? It wasn't because he was palatable or or desirable. 
It, it was something else. Jesus is getting them to think that they responded to the message of the kingdom, not because it looked good, not because it seemed nice, but because it was true. There was something to this message, not the messenger, that called to them. Hearing about the kingdom forced a reaction. Sometimes we can lose this when we think about evangelism or our own discipleship. It's easy to, to shift the message of the kingdom or, or portray the benefits of the kingdom to be about being about our lives here and now. So we think that we're going to attract people to, to come to Christ by, by showing them how great our youth program is or by really pushing how, how great it is to be part of the community here. But all that ends up doing is sounding like we're competing with a local football club. And look, as much as I love the, the tea and coffee time afterwards, if that is our big message, then we don't have a hope of reaching the next generation for Christ. How could that possibly compete with the entertainment industry? But we have to praise the Lord because the greatness of the gospel is not about the messenger. It's not about how we package it. It's about the message itself. And, and so when we evangelize, when we speak to people about Jesus, we don't need to pretend to be something we're not because it's not about us. You might think you're the least qualified person to speak about Jesus, but that doesn't make a blind bit of difference. God spoke through a donkey. He can use us too. You might think that you came to faith because someone was kind to you. Well, you didn't. Maybe that's what made you gave them a hearing, but, but the truth of God in the gospel, that is what changed your life. And so in evangelism, we need to remember that the people respond because God calls them through the truth and not because we are so attractive or, or, or so competent. But we need to remember this as well for our own discipleship. Because we can easily think that the, the benefits of God are about getting a better life, whether that's material gain or just a, a sneaky sense that if we are good with God, he's not, he's not going to give us any truly difficult situation. Because we all know that Christians don't suffer, right? Our children don't get sick. We don't lose all our money or, or get depressed. At least that's what we seem to be telling ourselves. I've been coming to church for years. God wouldn't let any of that stuff happen to me. And then it does. And then we think that all this faith stuff just isn't working. It hasn't done what it's supposed to do. We thought that the, the kingdom coming in our lives is going to protect us, but it, it sure doesn't look like it. Now, that thought process, which is, is so common for so many of us, it all stems from this subtle way that we move from understanding why we responded to Jesus. When, when the joy in our faith comes from a, a flexible spirituality that caters to our desires or an image of a better life that we want, then we make the goal of our faith our lives and circumstances. And when we do that, we forget the reason for our first love, that the true benefit of the kingdom coming is that we get God. 
Left to ourselves, we have all rebelled against God. We have all have this cancer of sin spreading through our hearts, pushing them away from him. We were made for, for communion with God, to, to walk in the light and to be held by our Father, but instead we have sunk into the ditch, hiding our shame in the shadows and being held there by the chains of sin. We were spiritually dead, unable to make any move towards what we were meant to be, left out in the cold and the dark. And yet, even though there was nothing good about us, even though we, we couldn't do anything for ourselves, even though we had all rebelled, God in his faithfulness sought us out. He, he picked us up and brought us back home. He made us alive again in Christ he gave us a way to come to him. He, he saved us from judgment and gave us a place at his table if we would only call on his name. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, the offer of the gospel, it's not an easier life or superficial happiness. It's joy in knowing your maker. It's peace at being exactly who you were meant to be. It's awe in thinking about the grace that we have been given. What we get in the gospel is an understanding that, that it's better to be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That, that being saved, we have been given access to God himself. And so to grow into maturity, we need to live in light of that. We need to be investing in understanding that because it's when we really understand that that we we're able to do all the other things that we battle with. Discipleship and, and, and the killing of sin is about grasping more and more about who God is and what he has done. And so we need to focus hard on knowing our Bibles, not just the odd verse here or there, but, but the great story of redemption. We need to fight hard against holding anything else up as more important in our lives or in our church. We need to speak into others' lives when we see the drift and call people back to the gospel. We need to let it affect us so that we can have honest and real relationships here. What this passage shows us through the different reactions to the coming of the kingdom is that our hearts are almost predisposed to miss the point. We think that God will work differently because we were led to assume that the real prize was a better life. But what Jesus does throughout is, is to remind us what God has said, is to point back to the true point of coming to the kingdom. This is what he says in verse 14. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And the point, what they are hearing, is that if, if John is Elijah, then, then Jesus is the Messiah. He is God with us. Do you have ears to hear? God has come. And this is what the kingdom means. This is what it means for us, that we get God. We get to know the creator of the universe, the one who has made us and sustains us, the one who can satisfy our souls, the only one in whom we can find peace. What are you looking for as you come here this morning? Why did you come? What do you see when you're here? 
Maybe you're here for the, the music or, or the community and, and friends. It's great to have you. Don't get me wrong. But, but if you're a part of the family, if you confess Jesus as Lord, then you have to remember what all that you have. You have to remember that you are here for God. You came for God. And all the other stuff is good. But remember that our focus is upon our Lord. In a minute, we're going to sing. But before we do, we have to accept that, that there are times in our lives when, when focusing upon God is just really difficult. And I know that there are people here today who are going through real pain. And in those times, we, we often don't know what to pray. We don't know how to take the next step, next step, how to focus upon God. But it's in those times that we pray for you, that your family pray for you. You might not be able to form the words to pray, but you can say amen with your brothers and sisters as they do. You might not be able to sing the words out, but, but that's when you allow the saints around you to, to carry you. You might not be able to see God moving in your life, so let your family point him out to you. Even when things are hard, even when we come looking in all the wrong places, the kingdom has come. It doesn't always mean that Life is going to be as we're expecting. But it does mean that we get God. That's what we want to rejoice in. That's what we want to fuel our worship and fill our hearts. That's what we want to know so that even when our faith is failing, even when the end draws near, even when life isn't what we wanted it to be, we have something greater. And we can know that the kingdom has come.